Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Probably familiar with that hymn, it's Amazing Grace. It's easily the most popular hymn over the last 200 years. It's estimated that that hymn is sung nearly 10 million times a year. In fact, we're going to add one more to that today. It's been recorded over 11,000 times, like professionally. Not, not talking about YouTubers. I'm talking like going into the studio, paying money to have a good recording. It's been covered by uh, the likes of Aretha Franklin, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Ray Charles, and countless others. It's been sung at major turning points in history. When Martin Luther King, right before he gave his I Have a Dream speech, they sung Amazing Grace. In Germany, when the Berlin Wall fell, people started singing Amazing Grace. And in the wake of tragedy and terrorism, to comfort a mourning nation after 9-11, we sang Amazing Grace. It's sung in churches all over the world every Sunday as we remember who we were and where we were when the grace of Jesus found us. The hymn is written by John Newton, and in 1772, Newton was a, a prolific hymn writer, and he would usually write one before uh, uh, that was kind of pertinent and relevant to the sermon he was preaching. And as he was preparing to preach on 1 Chronicles chapter 17, was reflecting on the text, reflecting on um, his people, and thinking about uh, what song should the people sing, he was stirred to write Amazing Grace, and particularly these words in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 16. As David is saying, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? David's reflecting like, who, who am I? Thinking about his sin, thinking about who he is, that, that God would have cared so much about him and to, to bring his family line, to bring him as far as he had come. And when he thought about that, he, he thought about who he was. Who, is, who was John Newton before becoming a pastor in England? Well, if you know his story, you know that he spent a number of years involved in the Atlantic slave trade. He lived such a life of depravity that even his rough shipmates, guys who aren't like moral upstanding characters in the community, right? Other rough seafaring men, they saw his life as shocking about how depraved uh, his life was. And then on March 21st, 1748, Newton experienced what he called his great turning day. There was a great storm that sought to destroy his ship, and he cried out to God in desperation. And he prayed that though he had lived this uh, life of abject rejection of God, he begged God for mercy. And after 11 hours of fighting the storm, their ship was spared, and he began his journey of faith. And over time, Newton became a pastor, grew an understanding of God's word. He, he came to denounce the slave trade, worked with William Wilberforce to end slavery in England. And as he uh, was on his deathbed, his eyesight and memory were beginning to fade. He wrote these words, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. John Newton ended his life physically blind, but spiritually seeing. Though he was a wretch, the amazing grace of Jesus was more than enough for him. And that's why he could write in that famous hymn, I was blind, 
but now I see. Today we meet a man in John chapter 9 who said the same thing. I don't know about anything else, but there's one thing I know. That though I was blind, now I see. He began his life physically and spiritually blind. But by the grace of God, as we come to the end of the chapter, not only does he receive physical sight, but also spiritual sight. As we look at John chapter 9 this morning on page 895 in the Bibles around you, our story is going to follow three major headings. First, we're going to see the sight of the sign. This is one of those signs that John has placed in uh, his gospel to point us to Jesus. A blind beggar will receive sight, and the people are amazed to see such a sight. Then as we move forward, we'll see the skepticism of the sign. The Pharisees and religious leaders, as they're uh, uh, looking at what's happened to this man, they bring their usual skepticism and cynicism, and they begin to question this miracle because it was performed by Jesus on the Sabbath. And finally, as we move towards the end, John is going to tell us about the significance of the sign. Remember, all of the signs, every sign you've ever come into contact with points to something beyond itself. The point of a sign is not the sign. The point of a sign is what it's pointing you to. And John wants to make sure that we don't miss that Jesus came to give sight to the blind. So let's start in verse 1 as we look at the sight of the sign. Verse 1, as he passed by Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. Now let's stop right there. John is setting up this story. He introduces us to a man who's known for two things. Verse 1 tells us that he's been blind since birth. Now think about that. He has never known light. His whole life has been spent in darkness. Now I want you, if you'll trust me here for a moment, I want you to close your eyes. Right where you are, close your eyes for a minute. And when you close your eyes, even though you can't see, you still have a picture in your mind of what was just in front of you. So, the, you know, this short Italian man in front of you, preaching, you, you, you recognize the, the, the room, that picture is still in your mind. You, you can have picture of people in your mind that you know, maybe your spouse, maybe your, maybe your friend, your children, your coworkers. You have pictures in your minds of the scenes of your life. Now imagine that when you're, now you still have your eyes closed, that there are no pictures. There are no reference points. There's nothing that comes to mind, only darkness, only nothing. And that is the everyday reality for this man. Okay, you can open your eyes. Imagine that, your whole life, only darkness. Now the second thing we know about this man from verse eight is that his only means of income has been begging in the streets. Remember, this is first century in a Jewish province of the Roman Empire. There is no Americans with Disabilities Act. There's no provisions for this man. And so your only source of income is begging in the streets. And think about what that does to your life and your sense of worth and your sense of value over time. It's humiliating. Not only can you not see, but people don't see you. You're blind, and the world is blind to you. But in verse 1, we see that Jesus sees this man. Jesus was not blind to this man. He sees him, and this man's life is about to change. Verse 2. And his disciples asked him, 
Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, given his state of blindness and poverty, Jesus' disciples see him and they, they ask a question that a lot of us ask, like, what happened? Like, why is this person suffering? It, it's a natural human response when we see suffering to ask, why? What caused this man's suffering? Was it something he did or was it something his parents did? Now, this, this understanding was common in Judaism at the time, and I think it's actually still pretty common among us today. We know from Genesis 1 to 3 that our world was created good, and God even calls it very good. But when sin entered into this world, suffering became part of our common experience. So in one sense, in its most general sense, suffering is a result of sin. But to assume that a person's specific situation of suffering is a direct result of their specific sin or their parents' specific sin is to wrongly apply this principle. There was a well-known uh, Jewish saying in the Talmud at the time. It says this, there is no death without sin and there is no suffering without iniquity, which is basically saying if you're experiencing suffering, you have you to blame. It's your fault. You, you, it's, it's, like, it's like karma. You've done something wrong, or maybe, maybe your parents have done something wrong, but you're, you're justly suffering as a result of your participation in sin. See, it's one thing to understand that all suffering is a result of living in a sinful world. And there are some times where it's obvious, where a, uh, there's, a, there's a direct connection between someone's sinful actions and natural consequences, right? But to make a direct connection, this very tight cause and effect relationship between someone's suffering and their sin or their parents' sin goes well beyond the biblical evidence. And not only that, think about the person suffering. It adds further shame to them. It adds further victimization. It adds further suffering to the sufferer. The reality is, is that it goes beyond what we can understand. It's natural to ask why, but we don't always know the exact reason why. Now, how does Jesus respond to their question? Verse three, Jesus answered, it was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus isn't giving us an answer for everyone, but he is saying, I'm gonna speak to this man right here. I'll, I'll give you the answer why for this man's sin. So Jesus begins to correct their theology, some of their misunderstanding. And he said, this man's suffering is not a result of his sin or his parents' sin, but his suffering is held in the sovereign hand of a loving God so that God might display his glorious works through him. What Jesus is saying is this man's suffering will not be wasted. Now let that truth sink in for a moment. This man is just sitting there. This man's never met Jesus. He has no idea in these, this cosmic, glorious work of God going on. He's just, every day, he's known darkness. He has no idea what God was up to or what he was doing. But his ignorance to the purposes of God and the glory of God do not change the reality that God was preparing to display his glory in him. Vanitha Rendell Reisner knows a thing or two about suffering. Her life is incredible. 
As a child, she contracted polio. As an adult, she suffered the loss of an infant child and later was left by her husband to be a single mom. And when she was reading this passage, commenting on it, she writes these words. Jesus' answer to the disciples stunned me. Think about it. She's a sufferer, and she's reading this passage, and it's directly confronting her. She said, it stunned me. Jesus recognized that the blind man's condition wasn't his fault. And rather than condemn him, Jesus honored and dignified him. This blind man's suffering wasn't a punishment. God was going to use his life. The works of God would be displayed in him. Could God be telling me that my life would display his work as well? It seemed crazy to believe that he would use my pain for something good, but somehow I sensed he would. And I knelt at the side of my bed and committed my life to a God I didn't know, but who certainly knew me. I know, family, that it can seem crazy that God could use our pain for something good, that God uses suffering for glory, that God turns darkness into light, but that's what he does. Here we have a picture of that reality in the blind man. Now Paul explains the principle in his letter to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 to 18, Paul writes this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're fading, they're passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Here's what Paul is saying. When our faith becomes sight, when, when, when looking back with hindsight, we have that 2020 vision, believers will be able to look back on our present suffering, no matter how heavy, no matter how brutal, We'll all be able, when, when we have the full picture of everything, to look back and go, you know, at the time, it was crushing. At the time, it was heavy. At the time, it felt like it was more than I can bear. But knowing what I know now, it was light and momentary. It wasn't wasted. And Paul also tells us that our suffering is achieving and working an eternal weight of glory beyond what you can imagine. And you might be saying, but I can't see it in the moment. I don't feel it in the moment. And Paul is saying, exactly. You're not going to know it in the moment. But you have to believe that God's promises are true and that it is working. It is achieving something. It's accruing this eternal weight of glory that will be revealed. It'll be beyond what you can imagine right now. It's beyond anything you could compare it to. It's beyond what you can see. So this story and what Paul is saying is don't look at your circumstances. Your circumstances will teach you a false narrative about God's character and about who he is. He's saying when you can't understand what God is doing by what you see in front of you, believe in the promises and the character of God. So when you lose your job, when you find out it's cancer, if you're staring death itself in the face, don't let your circumstances define reality. There is something bigger and grander and more glorious going on. Look to Jesus. Look to his word and know that your suffering is not 
meaningless. It's not. It's doing something that you cannot see, but one day you will. Jesus entered into this man's life and just peeled back the curtain of heaven to show him something. Look what he goes on to say in verse 4. We must, Jesus is still speaking, work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed, and he came back seeing. Now Jesus said, while it's still day, we must be about doing the work of my Father who sent me. Night is coming, and my present ministry will come to an end. When he talks about night is coming, it's another illusion, another forward pointing to his subsequent death and arrest. Nearly every single chapter has one of those illusions, one of those foreshadowings that night is coming. Suffering is coming for me. So right now we need to be about this work. Again, Jesus says like he did in the last chapter, I am the light of the world. And then what does he do? He doesn't just say that he's the light of the world. He, he shows that he's the light of the world by bringing light to this man. So he makes some mud with his saliva. He anoints the man's eyes, and he sends him to the pool of Siloam. And this man obeys the words of Jesus, and he washed. I just find that amazing that he just got mud rubbed in his eyes, you know, and he just obeys. With faith, he believes that Jesus can do something for him and for the first time in his life he could see now john goes on to say that when he returned from the pool of siloam the townspeople noticed the blind beggar's eyes had been opened this man that they have tried to avoid and maybe given him a few shekels here and there they noticed something's different about him they recognize him but the shock of the miracle the impossibility that anyone blind could ever receive sight it it stirs up debate among the townspeople some affirmed no no that's that's the guy that's him that was the man who was formerly blind but clearly he's not blind anymore others couldn't believe that this man had been healed so they conclude no 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 that's not him that's that's someone who looks like him that's his doppelganger it can't really be him but the blind man insists, no, no, it's me. I, I've been healed. I, I, I can see. It, it was that man that they called Jesus. And he recounts the details of what happened. And they ask him, where is he? And he goes, I don't know. I don't know where he's gone. I, I came back and he's not here anymore. And now the townspeople have a choice to make. Believe the sign. Believe the miracle that, that God has done in their midst as a way to point to Jesus or come up with some other explanation now let's look at verses 13 to 34 we're going to move into this next section now to see the skepticism of the sign so like most people in their day they would have said okay something significant has happened let's bring him to uh the religious leaders of the day verse 13 they brought him to the pharisees the man who had been formerly blind see they bring in the religious authorities to speak to what's happened right 
They want to know uh, if a true miracle has happened, it should be authenticated. And if it's authenticated, then we should think about what does it mean? What's the significance of the miracle that's happened among us? Now, John says in verse 14, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And the blind man said, he is a prophet. Now, John's a great storyteller. He waits until this point, uh, the rising action of the story to say, now it was the Sabbath, which if you're paying attention to John, that comes up over and over again. That's where like the, the minor key comes in, right? It's the Sabbath. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> According to the stringent pharisaical law, healing work, and any kind of work is forbidden on the Sabbath unless someone's life is on the line. Now, blindness be, is, is a tragedy, but it's not life or death. So they conclude healing, that kind of healing is work, and you can't do work on the Sabbath. So the religious leaders start discussing the matter, and two groups emerge. You got group A over here. They come to the conclusion, listen, Jesus is guilty of breaking the Sabbath law. And if he's guilty of breaking the Sabbath, he can't come from God. So here's how that logic works. He healed the man on the Sabbath. Healing is work. Work on the Sabbath is sin. Therefore, Jesus is a sinner, and he's not sent from God because God wouldn't send us a sinner. You see that? The logical syllogism. That's group A. Group B over here says, well, hold on now. He must have been sent from God. Here's how their logic worked. This sign is like nothing we've ever seen before. In fact, there is not a single Old Testament recording of someone receiving sight in the Old Testament. Go read all 39 books. You're not going to find a single miracle of the blind receiving sight. So the only way Jesus could restore this man's sight if he were sent from God. So you had these two groups emerge. The debate is going on. And so they look at the man and they go, well, what do you think? And he says, well, I think he's a prophet. Now notice, earlier he was the man they called Jesus. And now he's like, I'm... I think he's a prophet, right? You see this progression starting to happen. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and he had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. So the two uh, groups emerge. They ask the man. They, they're, not, they're not ready to say he's a prophet. So they say, well, maybe he's lying. Maybe he wasn't really born blind. How will we know that? Bring in his parents. So as the investigation progresses, the leaders call his man, the man's parents to testify. And their initial doubts have given way to skepticism. You see, they have evidence in front of them, but they don't want to believe it. And so they're increasing in their skepticism. Like, maybe he's lying now. And they don't believe that he'd really been born blind and that this is all some sort of, uh, of a ruse. And so they, they bring in his parents. They're looking for something to discredit this man so they can reveal that Jesus 
is a scammer. But the parents affirm his testimony that their son was blind from birth and that he has truly received sight. But as to how it happened, they don't know. And they say, listen, he's of legal age. His testimony is valid, so ask him. Verse 24, so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, do you see that? Their skepticism has now become hardened cynicism. And they bring back the man in for another round of questioning. Their their initial doubts have become skepticism and now is full-blown cynicism. They, They have made a conclusion about this man. And they turn up the heat and demand that he tell them the truth. And that phrase, give glory to God, it's not a a pleasant way of saying it. They're they're saying, listen, you're taking glory from God. You're you're saying that this miracle uh, was from someone else. And so we know you're lying. We know there's something up. Tell us the truth. Confess that you know this man's not a prophet, but a sinner, and that he is not from God. In verse 25, he says, listen, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I know. Though I was blind, now I see. This man's not playing their game. He will not be bullied into discrediting Jesus. And he says those most famous words, one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. You'll notice they start questioning him again. If you read on in verse 26 to 29, and he gives his final assessment of who Jesus is in verse 30. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. He's starting to to push back a little bit. He's going, "You, you have all the evidence you need. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Verse 32, and never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now follow his logic. He's, he's, he's talking back to the Pharisees and he says, listen, our scriptures, they testify that no one born blind has ever had their eyes open. And in fact, the scriptures testify that it's only God who can open the eyes of the blind. It's only God who can give sight to the blind. I'll give you two examples. Exodus 4:11. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And again in Psalm 146, verse 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. And since God is the only one who can open the eyes of the blind, he's saying, and Jesus has opened my eyes, then at the very least, Jesus is sent from God. Now, do they stop to consider this well-reasoned logic of the man? Do they stop to consider the evidence of what they've seen? Look at what they say to him in verse 34. They answered him, well, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. They excommunicated him. They kicked him out of the synagogue. See, instead of considering his claims, they resort to personal attack and they cast him out. Have you ever noticed that? When you you present a good argument and someone can't uh, counter, they start attacking you, right? They shame him. They rehearse the lie that he's heard his whole life, that his blindness was due to his sin. 
Simply put, they don't want to see Jesus for who he is. They don't want to receive this miracle. And their hardened heart has caused spiritual blindness. They can't see what's happening right in front of their eyes. See, it's not that they can't physically see Jesus. It's not that they can't physically see that a miracle has been performed in their midst. It's that they don't want to. Hardened desires against Christ can form spiritual blindness. Their skepticism and cynicism has created a confirmation bias. Here's how that happens. See, when you don't want something to be true, you will reject facts, sources, and reasons that don't align with your already determined conclusion. They are not open and in, 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 in objective to, to receiving this. They're not thinking through these, the, the logic of the man. They're not thinking through the logic of, of the evidence. They're not seeking the truth. What they're doing is seeking validation for their already settled rejection of Jesus. We'll see this over and over in the Gospels. It's going to continue to intensify in the Gospel of John. There's these two kinds of ways to deal with doubt. The first is faith that seeks understanding. Where you say, listen, I, not everything's adding up, but with faith, I want to try to understand. Or there's this other way where, you're, where your settled cynicism will just seek validation. The Pharisees and religious leaders were, un, were unwilling to consider that maybe, just maybe, their understanding of the Sabbath was wrong. You see, if they had just questioned their initial premise, their more stringent, not the Mosaic law, but their more stringent oral law, that maybe healing could be done on the Sabbath. If they just questioned that premise, it would have led to a different conclusion. But that would presuppose that they were wrong. And they didn't want to be wrong. If they had, were willing to consider that maybe they had some faulty assumptions and faulty premises, maybe they would have come to a different conclusion. If they had had an open heart, these teachers of Israel would have remembered the ancient promises of the prophet Isaiah. Several times in the prophet Isaiah, he talks about the blind receiving sight. Let me give you one in chapter 42, verse 6 to 7. Isaiah writes this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Remember Jesus said, what did he say? I am the light of the world. I'll give you a light for the nations. Who'll do what? Open the eyes that are blind and bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now, again, this is one of those prophecies that has both a physical reality and a spiritual reality. But it should have, they should have been longing for the day when, in that messianic age when the Messiah would come. If you read the whole chapter of, of, of Isaiah 42, you'll see that one of the signs of the dawning of the messianic age was the restoration of the sight to the blind. And ironically, these religious leaders who should have known uh, are blind to the promises of God. If anyone was well-versed in the scriptures, it was this group. They should have known that when Messiah comes, he will restore sight to the blind. At the very least, they should have been going, hey, this was one of those markers. Could it be that this was the one we've been waiting for? And it's happening right before their very eyes, and they're missing it. Friends, what characterizes our posture 
when we come to Jesus? Is it faith seeking understanding? Or do we come with settled cynicism looking for validation of our already determined beliefs and rejection? The difference between the two is everything. Faith seeking understanding leads to sight. Cynicism seeking validation leads to blindness. Hardened skepticism eventually becomes settled cynicism. And when that happens, you will miss the significance of the sign. Now look with me at verse 35 to 41. And let's do so as a people with faith seeking understanding so that we don't miss the significance of the sign. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, Jesus said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is I who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. When Jesus heard that the man had been cast out of the synagogue, he sought him out. Just like Jesus took the initial initiative to restore sight to the, to the blind man, he heard that he had been cast out, so he sought after him to engage the blind man. And when he found him, he speaks to him. Now remember, up until this point, this man has not seen Jesus. He's met him, he's spoken with him, but he has not laid his eyes on him yet, his restored eyes. He hasn't actually seen Jesus yet. That's why I think it's so significant that Jesus says, you have seen him. You couldn't see me before, but because of what I've done, you see me now. And then Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? We've seen this title before in John. The Son of Man was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. If you're taking notes, write that down. I encourage you to go read it. It's filled with messianic imagery. The man asks, who is he so that I may believe in him? And Jesus says, you are looking at him. So in other words, Jesus asks, do you believe that I am the Messiah, the Son of Man sent from God? And the man says, Lord, I believe. Now think about his progression of faith. Remember, when he first met Jesus, he said, the man they called Jesus. Then when the, when the Pharisees were trying to get him to discredit him, he said, I think he's a prophet. And now he's come to this moment face to face with Jesus and looking at him. And he says, I believe that you are the Messiah. Think about his day. Think about where he's come. Think about how he's progressed in understanding. His faith wasn't perfect, but it was growing and it was deepening as he sought to live in the grace and live out the grace that he was shown. And now by grace through faith, what is he doing? He's worshiping Jesus. He's grateful for his sight. He's grateful that he's seen the Savior, the one sent by God to bring restoration and deliverance. And now, in the next verse, in verse 39, Jesus is going to tell him the significance of the sign. Remember, the sign is not the point, but what the sign points to is the point. Every time in John's gospel, when we see that word, the sign, we should be asking, what is it pointing to? What's the significance of it? Remember, in John chapter 31, he tells us why he's accumulated um, these signs, why he's written about them. Remember that? 
John 20, 31, it's the purpose statement of the whole gospel. He said that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we would have life in his name. He says, I've written about these signs so that when you see what they're pointing to, and they're pointing to Jesus, that you would believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. So let's look at verse 39 to see the significance. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now let's unpack that for a second. Jesus is saying, his signs, the things that he performs, these miracles, they become a dividing line. People have to do something with that sign that he performs. You can't remain neutral. When you've experienced that sign, when you've seen that sign, you have to make a decision about what you think about it, right? That's why he's saying it's, it, 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 it's, it's a judgment. It's a, it's a dividing line. There's going to be one side over here and one side over there. You can't remain neutral. The signs point to who Jesus is. It reveals who he is and what he's come to do. And so for some, the signs serve as this drawing mechanism towards belief in Jesus Christ. Those with faith-seeking understanding, they see the signs and they're confirming and they're eye-opening But those who come with cynicism seeking validation, those signs actually serve to validate their unbelief. It begins to harden them. And Jesus is saying, those who are blind, those who recognize their spiritual blindness, I will give you sight. You'll receive sight. But those who think they see, those who think they have a good grasp on what's going on in the world, those who in their pride say, I can figure it out on my own. Jesus says, you're gonna find out that you're actually blind, that you're not seeing clearly, you're not seeing what's going on. That's the significance of this sign. Jesus is saying, when you see it, it's gonna divide you into two groups. One over here that recognizes their own spiritual blindness, that is grateful that Jesus is the light, shining light into the darkness, pointing to him, and they'll receive him. Or those who think they see, Those who in their pride say, I've got it all together. I'm able on my own to figure it out are gonna realize you're actually not seeing you're blind and you don't have a clue about what's going on. And that sign is gonna put us on one side or the other. Now, as John brings this story to close, we find out that the Pharisees are listening into the conversation. I don't know if they're like hiding in some bushes somewhere, but they just always kind of pop out, right? Verse 40. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. See, they sense the implications of what Jesus said to the man, and they act appalled, right? They're saying, whoa, 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 Jesus, are you saying that that we're blind? They want to know what Jesus thinks. And Jesus says, well, Here's the the deal. If you were actually spiritually blind and recognized your need, then I would have given you sight. But the problem is, is you don't think you're blind and in your pride, you don't recognize your need. Therefore, your guilt and your blindness remains. And this scene ends with the formerly blind man seeing and being affirmed by Jesus. and, And then those, meanwhile, those who reject Jesus are judged to be blind and remain 
in their guilt. You see that reversal? The one guy at the very beginning of the story who can't see anything, by the end of the story, sees everything clearly. And the people who at the beginning of the story think they have 20-20 vision realize they're actually blind. D.A. Carson summarizes this passage well. When the light shines, some are made to see like this man bore blind, while others who think they see turn away, blinded as it were, by the light. See, throughout the story, the blind man progresses from darkness to light, from blindness to sight, from being this outcasted sinner that everyone thinks, man, what did his family do to cause his blindness? To being an affirmed disciple who is rightly worshiping Jesus. And the religious leaders who they, they progress or digress, as it were, from light to darkness, from sight to blindness, from being these righteous insiders to being condemned as those who wrongly reject Jesus. John is setting up this reversal to ask us, which camp do you want to be in? The significance of this sign is that Jesus is the light who conquers darkness. And without light, without him, there is no sight. See, friends, from beginning to end, when you think about God's big story of redemption, Jesus is the light who brings an end to our darkness. He restores the blindness of our sin and in the gospel gives us light so that we can see once again. To go all the way back to the garden when sin enters in, it brings a darkness over God's world of light. Think about that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke light into the darkness. And then sin brought a, a, a hovering, a cloudiness, a darkness in. And ever since, there's this refrain in the scriptures, when will it become light again? When will it become light again? When will God remove the darkness? That's why it's so significant that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. No one needs convincing that we live in a land of deep darkness, right? Look at your Twitter feed, turn on the news. There's darkness everywhere. Everywhere we turn, there's brokenness and blindness. But God, being rich in mercy and love, has sent the light of the world to shine into our hearts. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, we need light to see. It's a fundamental reality, right? If, there, if we were in a room of utter and complete darkness, there would be no sight. Your eyes need fundamentally light in order to see. Without Jesus, there is no light. There's only darkness and only blindness. And those who recognize their blindness, those who recognize their spiritual poverty, receive the light of Jesus as their only hope. John chapter 9 is emphatically telling us that Jesus has the ability to bring someone, anyone, from darkness to light, from blindness to sight. If you've not had the light of Christ shine into your heart, what? stops you what stops you from recognizing your need you can receive that light today even now you know how you receive that light you simply recognize 
that you are in fact blind. You recognize your need and you ask that God would shine the light of Christ into your heart to give you faith so that you could see. And friends, if you have received the light, if you are a child of the light, it's good to remember where we were and who we were when we met the grace of Jesus. Do you remember who you were and where you were when Jesus removed your blindness and with the eyes of faith you began to see? Let's remember that moment and be encouraged to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, as we live lives of humble gratitude for all that Christ has done. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Let's pray.